0: Good morning, dear listeners. Sorry about that um, metronome, which I seem to be having a problem with. This is Alan Karbelnig. Sorry, I've just been absenting myself lately. Too many things to do during the pandemic, ironically enough. This is podcast number four of a series of ten that I have been doing on what I consider the top ten concepts in psychoanalysis in the way of a very brief overview for those of you who have been. Following uh, an introductory set, and now this being the top 10, um, I've become really uh, devoted, committed, just convinced that uh, the future of psychoanalysis lies in clinical pluralism and actually theoretical pluralism uh, period. There's not going to be a definitive overarching theory of mind I am convinced some people think otherwise. So therefore, like Robert Wallerstein, who coined the phrase uh, something like the psychoanalytic opus is a quote, is a source of quote, a plethora of theoretical metaphors, unquote. I view our field in the same uh, manner that uh, you may like the Kleinian model the unconscious as consisting of unconscious fantasy or the Freudian one as consisting of the id, ego, and superego. But in my view there's just not going to be a finalist and when you work with patients you customize your metaphors to the unique needs of the patient after knowing a lot about psychoanalytic models and human experience generally. For those of you who might be new, this podcast is intended, more accurately, a lecture for people who are considering entering psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy or who are studying depth therapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, psychodynamic psychotherapy. Those are all the same. And the top uh, four, the number four topic of the 10 has to do with dreams and other signifiers of the unconscious. And let me give you a few more contextual factors. First of all, in my effort to cut across all the different psychoanalytic clinical models from the Freudian to the Jungian to the Kleinian to intersubjectivity and relational psychoanalysis, I have argued in a 2010 paper that all psychoanalysts, regardless of their orientation do three basic professional behaviors. Number one, they frame the relationship in terms of a regular meeting time, uh, however long the session is going to be, the place, typically an office or more recently a Zoom environment. Um, you're creating a structural frame that includes professional boundaries, minimal self-disclosure, regularity in time, place fee, billing practices, etc. That's the frame. I devoted a whole lecture to this a few months ago. Secondly, they bring their presence, and that is like a metaphorical opening of the arms or a turning on of a massive uh, uh, software, human wetware reception uh, capacity where uh, you are curious, respectful, open receptive, empathetic um, period, Uh, when I get to engagement, I talk about the idea of focused empathy. I'll get to that in a second. But what presence means is, again, this doesn't matter whether you're Jungian, Freudian, Kleinian, or whatever. The patient walks in, you sit down, you are zooming your attention onto the patient using Anna Freud's idea of evenly hovering attention. What that means is um, you're not going to be judgmental, you're not going to ask too many questions, you're there to receive the flow of the patient's associations and just watch where it goes um, in a relatively non-interventionist fashion. So presence is really about just attention and empathy. Engagement, which I also devoted a separate lecture to, is all the various ways that really comprise the transformational process. Now, that can include focused empathy, such as, oh, you've never told me about your father's death before, and I notice you're tearing up. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that, where now you're focusing your empathy on allowing the patient to grieve the loss of their father. But engagement has a fairly limited number of Uh, verbal uh, types, that it would be confrontations, interpretations, clarification of feelings, focused empathy, like I just mentioned. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out one, but you get, you know, you get the idea, uh, something like, oh, you know, you keep using the word frustration repeatedly, but I really wonder what other words might apply, uh, what other emotional words to what you are feeling. So, engagement can be fairly um, confrontive, as I mentioned, and of course it involves interpretation and that would include interpreting the transference and counter transference, which I've already talked about in considerable detail. The next uh, second to last kind of contextual idea here is one way to just frame, no pun intended there, the complexity of the psychoanalytic project is to consider that there are four fundamental, uh, if you will, um, legs on the table, or four struts holding up the entire psychoanalytic edifice, and those include the four I'm covering initially in these top ten podcasts, and those are uh, the general idea of the unconscious, and this is an original Freudian idea, these four, by the way, but one problem with it is uh, it's already confusing because the unconscious is really the sine qua none of the psychoanalytic project. That is the thing we are all chasing. Um, and that includes secrets patients are barely able to tell themselves, things they disavow like they just don't pay much attention to or they don't really want to look at, they deny or disavow, all the way to just the completely unconscious like the ways they... Mistreat their spouse or they allow their boyfriend to mistreat them and uh, so on. Uh, Now, beneath, if you consider this foursome now having the unconscious as a heading, there are four, there are three basic subheadings, and this is also found in the work of Lacan and some of Lacan uh, interpreters like Harari those three are transference, uh, dreams, and uh, the repetition compulsion. The repetition compulsion is just like repetitive patterns, getting into abusive relationships where they're the recipient or the uh, persecutor, um, uh, feelings of persecution, feelings of grandiosity, whatever repetitive themes are, I consider them psycho-emotional-cognitive Uh, behavioral. um, And you already know about them, I'm quite sure. So today I'm focusing on the fourth one, which is dreams and other signifiers of the unconscious. Uh, The last contextual factor, and this fits in with my general idea of uh, clinical pluralism, that every psychoanalytic dyad is entirely unique. the patient and you make up an entirely unique configuration you know think about it if the patient goes to an internist with a sore throat 10 out of 10 internists are going to follow a very basically similar set of procedures they're going to take a history examine your throat maybe take a swab from the back of your throat send it off to a lab feel your lymph nodes etc cetera, etc cetera. You present in a psychoanalyst office with a sad feeling or any depth or psychoanalytic psychotherapist office and you're going to have an entirely different experience based on the personality lifestyle historicity socioeconomic status geography etc etc of the analyst and the patient this is primary in my mind so you're still doing framing presence and engagement with all patients, but every dyad is unique and the same thing goes for when you're interpreting dreams. So there's a tremendous amount of paying attention to the phenomenology of what the patient presents. That's kind of item number one. As soon as you bring your presence, you start to note how are they dressing, how are they gesturing, how are they speaking, what is the content of their speech, are there long pauses, um, you then customize your engagement depending on the style of the patient. And here's where I have issue. Although I, I nominally identify myself as a relational psychoanalyst, I'm much more accurately a, a structured, eclectic psychoanalyst because I'm going to be very careful about self-disclosure or reporting what's happening between me and the patient, let's say, I start to feel feelings of envy or I start to feel anger uh, very much on the style of a patient. Patients on the autistic spectrum uh, or those with just highly cognitive styles or highly emotionally reactive like borderline personality disorder patients, one needs to be very careful about implementing the more interpersonal or intersubjective uh, uh, points of view there's really a place for them, and that's how you'll learn about this as you get more as a patient or a psychoanalyst into the artistic nature, the foundational artistic nature of the work. But really, you're customizing every every intervention to the specifics of the dyad, including who you are, relying on phenomenology and impro- improvisation, improv, improvisation, improvising. Uh, literally each and every session. um, A patient can burst into tears and the entire rest of the session may just be focused empathy and interpretations of any type, not even about the meaning of the crying, um, are probably gonna fall by the wayside. And the ideal intervention at that point is just allowing the patient to experience the emotion before even trying to make some kind of sense of what it means in terms of transference, their personal history, their history with you, etc., so on. Okay, so that is it for kind of the introduction. Let me turn now to the basic Freudian idea of dreams. Um, now being the typically opinionated person that I am, Freud was dead wrong in my view and many, many would disagree with me when he famously declared in the year 1900 in his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, is that they all represent a wish fulfillment of some type. If I dream of Scarlett Johansson, that really means that I uh, have an image of her as being an object of desire for me, and I wish to have that object fulfilled. But for your information, that was Freud's concept of what the function of dreams were. The body was intended to maintain sleep while the usually uh, socially inappropriate wish fulfillment is expressed via the dream content. He thought dreams had a manifest and latent content, so the manifest content would be just what's most obvious and what the patient reports. So that would be if I dream of a woman in the coffee shop near my office, Um, the manifest content is just that. That's the whole dream. And let's say the woman is angry at me because I wasn't wearing a mask when I walked into the coffee shop. Um, The latent content is what you're really going for in terms of interpreting the dream, and that's all the multiple layers of underlying meaning. So that could be that the mother, the mother, (laughs) the woman in the coffee shop represents my mother, my wife, my sister, the anger could be a displacement of my anger onto her, or it could be be a reliving of my perception of my mother as having been angry at me in early childhood or at various points in my life. Um, So uh, that is all I have to say about the manifest versus the latent content. Um, Freud also famously discussed what he called the dream work, which are three basic ways that dreams are created, uh, and that is the use of symbolism, displacement, and condensation of much easier to understand than you might think Symbolization simply means every feature of the dream can symbolize 5,000 other things. My process of walking to the nearby coffee house could be my walking through life, could be literally the fact that I go to that coffee house almost every day, could be the act of walking itself. The coffee house can represent any number of things from warm maternal milk to a need for stimulation, to drugs, to caffeine, to cocaine, to methamphetamine, etc. So you get the point about symbolization. Condens; these all kind of overlap with one another. If you think of Venn diagrams, they all really just overlap one to the other. So the second one, displacement, again a very simple concept, and that, as I already uh, illustrated in an earlier example, is just that um, uh, things, affects, emotions, uh, uh, actions can be displaced from one party or element of the dream to another. So just because the manifest content of that dream is that the woman in the coffee house is angry at me, it could be a displacement of my anger onto her a lovely and still modern idea to consider when interpreting dreams. So just because a patient comes in and tells you they dream that you, the psychoanalyst, were very angry at them, the meaning of the dream may actually get back into that they're angry at you, not that you're angry at them. And finally, condensation, another simple to understand. Think of it as in condensing water the way water condenses or the way matter condenses that's simply the idea that referring again to the woman in the dream the woman in the coffee house the woman can represent my mother my wife my girlfriend my daughter all women a woman in my office a woman patient a woman colleague etc etc it could conceivably also represent a man. It doesn't have to be gender-specific. So according to Freud, all dreams represent hidden wishes for fulfillment, and the dream work consists of symbolization, displacement, and condensation. And what he meant by that is that the unconscious mind during sleep does this work on dreams in order to encode them basically in a way that the conscious mind can understand if and when it, under, it remembers a dream. A little brief note on Carl Jung, just so sad that his work split off from Freud so early on and you have people go through Jungian training as opposed to psychoanalytic training. In my mind, a big shame. They both have a lot to offer. The key part about dreams that, Freud, that Jung added to the psychoanalytic input was his idea of the collective unconscious, which, according to him, lies right beneath or alongside the personal unconscious. Important to note to those of you that are Freud haters or Jung haters, they just really didn't veer that far apart from one another. Jung continued to believe in the personal unconscious. He rejected Freud's dual drive theory, which is simply the idea that it is eroticism or aggression or eros or thanatos that, that motivates human life. Jung thought there were much broader meanings to life than just those two, although he certainly thought that love and aggression are high up there on the list. And his collective unconscious consists of uh, a, a large set of archetypes, which you could spend the rest of your life reading about. They're all helpful. Um, I think another thing I'd have to go all the way back to my contextual factor about improvisation, customization, and phenomenology is just to, another part of presence in my mind is you try to be as open as possible when a patient walks in. So even if you had 10 years of Jungian analysis and then you went into Jungian training yourself, it's very important not to violate the patient by assuming their dreams consistently have a great mother theme to them or an Oedipal theme to them or a sibling rivalry theme to them. These are just a trove of additional intellectual ideas to help you understand what dreams might mean, but they always come come back to what makes sense to the patient. And here, I guess I betray my intersubjective or relational or even existential point of view, which is that the authority in psychoanalysis is the patient, not the psychoanalyst. The psychoanalyst is facilitating the patient's self-understanding, so therefore, and only after obtaining their associations, would you obtain information uh, about, uh, offer information about what a dream might mean. Often my personal favorite, the work of Fairbairn, who is a, one of the key object relations theorists, was writing in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, Ronald Fairbairn, he, he provided one of the best explanations of dreams. It really expands on Freud's wish fulfillment thesis, and that's just that it's like a highly coded short film representing an element of the patient's life. Could be their entire life, could be one of five major themes, could be just a small part of their relationship with their youngest daughter. Um, But it is a clip that's encoded using symbolism, displacement, and condensation, but not bound by the necessariness of, oh, it must represent wish fulfillment and we have to bend over backwards to find a way that there's some hidden wish that wants to be uh, uh, gratified. Uh, I would also like to bri- briefly refer to a fellow who supervised me for a couple of years, James Grotstein, only died a couple of years ago. Um, Jim wrote a book like called something like, Who is the Dreamer Dreaming the Dream? The book doesn't matter much unless you're interested in his work, but he made the brilliant point that every session really is a dream, and if a patient reports a dream, it is that is a dream within the dream of the session. What that means, consider a 45-minute session as a, uh, a, a moment in time, a sample of psycho-emotional, cognitive, behavioral behavior, and it's all through the patient's interpretive lens even if they come in and told you about a car accident they just witnessed 10 minutes before they came to your office it still is a um an interpretation of their experience that they're presenting and i just wanted to make that point there because then if they present a dream it is just a dream within that broader dreams a few pragmatic points now um some patients will report dreams every single session. Some will never report them. Because of my phenomenological orientation, I don't uh, encourage them or discourage them. Um, I will give the very common advice if a patient says, gee, I wish I remembered my dreams more and we could use them more in our work. And that's just the very common commonsensical, keep a notepad with a pen next to your bed. And if you wake up from a dream, you might quickly write down even just some notes on it, which will help you remember in the morning. Um, I've had patients have two years of twice-weekly psychotherapy and never bring up a dream. I have a patient consulting me right now who's always been very interested in Jungian psychology, and she brings a dream every single session. She keeps a journal of them, and at some point in the dream, she brings the dream in for us to talk about. So again, a very phenomenological open attitude towards Dreams, and please don't feel like you're doing something wrong, even if these are the four foundations the unconscious, repetition, compulsion, transference, brackets, and canotransference, and brackets, and dreams or other represent, representations of the unconscious. Again, uh, if the patient doesn't bring a dream ever, don't worry, there's a million other manifestations of the unconscious. Um, I wanted to, also dealing with common themes here, make some remarks on, you know, so-called universal trends. I'm sure this is consistent with my belief system thus far. I just do not believe in universal trends, and one has to be very careful when learning about them. Uh, You could buy a book on dream symbolization that would tell you what a train going into a tunnel means, and I, I think in the interest of openness, right, we have to consider the possibility that that could be a sexual dream, a penis entering a vagina. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And so go ahead and read all you want about potential symbols of dreams, and then make sure to customize and tailor your reactions to the, uh, particular, uh, dream, uh, presented to you. Um, A few other pragmatic ideas. I use really an old standard Freudian method, which is when a patient presents a dream, I will ask for their associations. I will rarely use the word associations. But I'll typically listen to the dream without any interruption. That, I think, is a good idea. And then I I would ask them, well, what are their own thoughts about the dream? That being a very broad, general intervention. Okay, let's go back to the coffeehouse dream. Uh, do you have any thoughts? And then, if they give me some or none, I will then break it down into pieces. Well, what are your thoughts about your walk over there? What are your thoughts about the person you said you saw when you walked in the coffeehouse? Hmm. You you mentioned that the 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 barist the barista was angry at you. Uh, what do you think that might mean? Uh, some depth psychotherapist have a practice of having a patient say the dream once and then repeat it a second time. I tend not to do that. I don't know why. I think uh, because of what Freud called secondary revision, you're already having an interpretation of the dream by the patient as soon as they present it to you. In other words, it's already been altered 500 times in the three hours since they dreamed the dream and came in and told you about it. Uh, I had a psychoanalytic supervisor forty years ago. Um, may he rest in peace. Who had an interesting idea about time of night. I have no idea if this is accurate or not, but thought I would share it with you, listeners. And that's just that uh, Freud had this phrase "day residue," which would be when you dream of uh, things that are happening uh, during the, that happened during the day, um, according to this old supervisor of mine, his name was Warren Jones. <clears throat> he thought that, and apparently learned this somewhere, that dreams that you have early in the evening, like if you wake up at midnight or 1am, having just slept a few hours and had a dream, it's going to be more likely influenced by day residue, something that happened to you during the, during the day. And the longer the dream, the later in the night the dream occurs, the more likely it is that it's going to have deeper unconscious meaning. Again, who knows if that's true? It's an interesting thought. Um, Any rule needs to be uh, considered as a tentative hypothesis. So all that being noted and me being almost out of time, I thought I would share a dream that I had uh, in my late adolescence And I barely remember the dream, but I know it had a lot of anxiety and aloneness contained in it. And I basically was in a large field where there were concrete foundational chunks. Like imagine like six foot by six foot concrete uh, footings uh, that then had a piece of rebar sticking out of it let's say 20 feet, and they had a hook around the end, and I'm holding on comfortably to the end of this piece of metal, and uh, from my anxiety state, I look around and see um, all these other people similarly situated. In my defense, I made a note about this dream without having any interpretive notes about it. So uh, my own associations would be, and actually these I do remember, uh, that phase of my life suffering a lot of angst and who am I, kind of typical existential aloneness theme, and the anxiety morphed into a comfort of knowing, oh, A, there are other people, and B, they're similarly isolated. Now thinking out loud right now, that, so I just took my own associations. I would then probably break it down and say, "Well, what do you make of the concrete foundations?" Uh, uh, now I just am right now thinking that suggests a certain kind of solidity, a certain kind of groundedness, a certain permanence, uh, which kind of argues against borderline traits. I hope um, that I am aware, despite the anxiety tone of the dream, of there being a groundedness inherent in the dream. The rebar, nothing particularly comes to mind there, uh, except it's, it also has a certain sturdiness to it. Uh, the fact that I'm hanging on to it comfortably is a little bit paradoxical there, because I don't remember there being any straps or something to secure me to it, and certainly not anything that I can sit in. So there is kind of a tenuousness of the aloneness, maybe of identity there. And the dream is basically an anxiety dream, because that's the main theme of it. But I would say there is some comfort in, and this is in fact how I felt, looking around and seeing that everyone else was really in the same boat, and I am there with other people. So it's really a dream of existential aloneness, born alone, die alone, but the comfort that comes from social relatedness. Well, always much left out when there's only 30 minutes to do a podcast, but I hope I provided you with a good grounding of the fourth of those foundational ideas, the unconscious, the repetition, compulsion, transference and countertransference, and dreams or other signifiers of the unconscious in the couple minutes I have left, I'll just share the other signifiers of the unconscious are literally infinite. Why was the patient late? Why did the patient get there early? Why did they just slump down in their chair? Why are they sitting forward apprehensively? Why did they just introduce a topic with, I've never told anyone this before, dot, dot, dot. Uh, That's one of my arguments against... um, they call it the triumphant, which is abstinence, neutrality, and oh, what's the word one? Abstinence, neutrality, and anonymity, which has to do with you say very little about yourself. I'm not so hardcore of a not self-discloser. I do think, like all the ethical codes um, preach, you only want to disclose in a way that's beneficial to the patient. But one of my arguments for somewhat of a loose uh, way of behaving as long as you're practicing framing presence and engagement is that is because there is an infinite number of manifestations of the unconscious so even if I've already explored a patient wanting to know whether I'm married or not what the meaning of the question is and then I disclose to them that I'm married a highly conservative analyst might argue, well, you've just constricted all the material there because now they know you're married, they can't project onto you that you're gay or that you're a polygamist or that you're into polyamory. But my rebuttal to that is there's so many, uh, so much material, so many places for the unconscious to present itself that it just frankly doesn't matter. On that humbling note, I thank you so much for your attention. And I bring this podcast number four of the top ten of uh, of uh, of all time psychoanalytic ideas to a close. Thank you again.